1: Hello and welcome to a new adventure, and like all the best adventures, it's shared with a good friend who happens to have a big contacts book and a sense of humour to match, as well as a vast motorsport knowledge and a stack of good stories, and you'd expect that from someone who's worked for Eddie Jordan. I'm Jonathan Ledjard and he's Mark Gallagher, and together we're at the controls, or to be more accurate, our guests are at the controls because over the next ten months we're meeting people Who pursued their dreams with a passion and energy to succeed in business, sport, and maybe both? These are men and women with a passion for cars, or boats, or planes, or in the case of one of our guests in this first episode, Mike Gascoigne, one time Formula One technical director, all three. So, Mark, as you're reconsidering your carbon footprint after being grounded by the coronavirus, Do you think it's a need for speed, danger, calm release or maybe just too much money that brings so many people to boats, cars and aeroplanes or all three in the case of Mike?
2: You know, Jonathan, you can't get involved in motor racing or aviation or the marine industry without meeting like-minded people. We all love innovation. We love a bit of technology. We like a bit of speed. We like being at the leading edge of what we do. In putting this podcast together, it's amazing to then start to research and find out that people like Mike... I mean, they span all three areas. i have a bit of a chat with uh, David Coulthard uh, in this episode, and we want to hear stories. So we're going to hear lots of stories, quite a bit of Formula One as well, and have a bit of fun
1: with it. But it's, it's a cliché. But one word which sums up so many people, in fact, most people in Formula One, I think, driven and I know it's a cliche oh, because yeah, that's what they do angry. so many people and that's what comes through with Mike Gascoigne comes through with David Coulthard comes through with so many of the people who we're going to talk to pilots those who've earned yachts sold around the world all those sort of people it's this passion and drive to succeed and achieve whatever the adversity so let me ask you a question how long could you have talked to Mike Gascoigne for well put it this way we met in his pub in the Cotswolds so they <laughs> I that love it. You 20, met in the that pub. Could, that could have been 24 hours. As it was, we, we had a chat for about half an hour. Is we it were, his pub? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Very good. But, yes, the, I could have talked forever because he's done so much, and so many of the people we were going to be talking to throughout this year have done so much, and it's just... Formanon is almost just a snapshot. That's why they've yeah. made their name, made their money, but actually, and that's what given them their platform, but there are so many other facets, and David Coulthard is a prime example. Where did you see him? How did you manage to catch up with him? Because he
2: seemed to flit around continents and time zones like someone just changes their watch. Yeah, but he flits around continents and time zones with me and we've been working together very closely for about the past eight years. We've known each other for, wait for it, about 30 years. We actually worked together before he got to Formula One and as a result we caught up in, of all places, the Nürburgring. So I was at the Nürburgring with him, we were doing an event and we then had a chat. So I'm sitting in the back of Skoda of all things on the way from Nürburgring to Frankfurt Airport and sitting beside me is David Coulthard. DC, how are you doing?
3: All good, all good. We've just been one of our award-winning presentations, Mark, that we do from time to time around the globe.
2: Uh, aside from the money, why, why do we do these?
3: <laughs> well, you, obviously, business is business, and there's there's that part of it. But I think, from my point of view, and you, you know, maybe for the listeners who don't know, we we've known each other a long time, you know, way back beyond our t- careers in, in Formula One. So you, one of the things you'll know. Probably better than those that only know me from Formula One or television today, is that I've always been the shy and retiring type. So the, the thought of standing up in front of a group of people and saying anything would have scared the whatnots out of me when I was younger. And even when I was a Grand Prix driver, I was pretty bad when it came to standing in front in front of a group of people to to you know direct content in a way that wasn't a thank you speech or. Um, in, in in answering questions or something like that. So a large part of why I started to d- get involved in, in doing public speaking and, and, and events, um, obviously using the leverage point of Formula One, is it puts me in an uncomfortable place. And when you're in an uncomfortable place, you learn about yourself, you get better at it, and you therefore grow as a person. So this... Doing things with you is a lot easier than when I do it on my own because I am not up there naked alone, basically, which is shared responsibility. But as you know, uh, we work on content together. When I'm actually just presenting on, on on my own, and that's a much bigger challenge for me.
2: Very glad to know that <clears throat> I've never had to be naked on stage with you so far. <laughs> um, anyway, um, it's interesting on a day like today where we've been at Nürburgring, and because we're at the Nürburgring, a proportion of the audience even though they were from the world of e-commerce, were Formula One fans. And here you are, 12 years after you stopped driving Formula One cars. I mean, you had a queue of people waiting for selfies. And I suppose that's, in the case of Nürburgring, probably down to the fact that so many people in Germany associate you with uh, what we might call the Schumacher era.
3: Yeah, that period of Formula One when I was nine seasons at McLaren Mercedes, you know Mercedes were very active in how they promoted their motorsports programme, so that meant that Mika Hakkinen uh, and Kimi Raikkonen, my two teammates during that period, we we were used in advertising, and some of that was print, some of it uh, wasn't really online in those days, but it was literally on television, so we filmed TV adverts, and... That really meant that I, even today, for a generation of Germans, I have a higher profile there than would normally be the case.
2: I actually have a, mem- a memory of doing an event with you in Düsseldorf, and we went through uh, airport uh, security, and one of the security women said, "Can I have my photograph taken with you?" And then all her colleagues down tools, and basically we stopped the whole of airport security so that you could have a photograph taken. I mean, your your marketability in Germany's. Amazing, really.
3: Yeah, again, I think it's from that generation where we were really promoted. And in all of Michael's success and popularity of Formula One because of him, then there was an element of, you know, that pulled everyone else who was players in the movie uh, along with them. But the the Germans are particularly into autogram cards. You know, they, they like they're used to people in the public eye having their own picture cards so very often i'll get asked for do i have an autogram card which would never be the case in the uk people might say oh can i have a photograph or can you sign this piece of paper but they're quite specific about you know having those very you know designed and and crafted uh autogram cards so yeah i have a profile here which is is nice to see i remember doing an event when nico rosberg was still racing for mercedes and uh, we had issues with the flight or something. We found ourselves having to take a train together, and he couldn't believe how recognised I was. You know, he was a Grand Prix driver, and I'd retired. And he was like, you're, "You're quite well known here, aren't you?" And I went, "Well, Nico, when you were, you know, still baby batter in your dad's ball bag, I was doing television adverts in in Germany. So don't underestimate the power of television. When when a lot of people watch Grand Prix racing at that time on TV."
2: Please tell me someone handed Nico their mobile phone and
3: said, could you take a photograph of me with (laughs) that? I would have loved that, if that had been the case. Um, Because, you know, he's he's certainly quite fond of himself, but that never happened, sadly.
2: A couple of weeks' time, Formula One heads down to Australia, starts the Formula One season, hopefully, uh, coronavirus notwithstanding. Do you have any kind of... What are your kind of expectations for this year? What do you think about Formula One 2020? Are we in for another... Lewis Hamilton Mercedes walkover is it going to be a bit more exciting than that what's your take on F1 2020
3: well it's interesting for me because I don't go to any of the testing anymore and I haven't really followed that closely what's happening in testing because I know having been a driver that you know if you're just focusing on a snapshot in history then that actually hasn't always been a good indication of what's to be expected when you get to the Grand Prix so I'll, I'll really turn up in Melbourne and discover the cars watch what's happening on track Friday, start to build a fresh picture in my mind as to where they are there because it doesn't matter who was quickest in Barcelona all that matters is who's quickest when you're in Melbourne so that will enable me to be quite fresh in my views and opinions easy money says Hamilton's the man to beat but let's, let's really keep an eye on Ferrari and Red Bull they're the only other two teams that really can challenge them I just did an event with Lewis Hamilton in Singapore
2: and found him... I mean, at the age of 35, he seems to be in an incredibly good place.
3: Yeah, I've got a real sense of watching his sort of off-season social media postings and and having obviously seen him move around at at different events. There's definitely a focus there. There's a steely focus. There's a... a, You know, he's sending clear messages that he's fitter, he's, he's hungry... You know, if I was a competition, I'd be like, oh, God, Lewis seems really up for it this year. And that's impressive when you consider he's been in Formula 1, what, this is his 14th season, he's won six world titles. He definitely wants this. And there's no guarantee just because he wants it, of course, he'll get it. And in my mind, he could have been already, a you know, a seven-time champion or an eight-time champion. You know, the championship year with Nico was pretty close. There's been other championship years where, you know, with a little bit more reliability... ...he could have won another title... ...so he is the benchmark... ...he is the Senna or the Schumacher of his generation... ...and I love to watch him... ...because you just know when he goes on track... ...something exciting is going to happen... ...but he's a very clean racer... ...doesn't get involved in many... stewards' inquiries... ...when he had that contact with Alex Albon in Brazil... He had apologised before he'd even gone to the stewards and accepted responsibility. It kind of probably spoiled the the opportunity for the stewards to interrogate him as to expecting him to be blaming the other side. But he just went, no, that was my fault, sorry.
2: Two other guys I want to talk to you about. Um, Your old team, Red Bull Racing. Max Verstappen, the whole Honda relationship with Red Bull seems to have worked out really well.
3: I mean... Are they going to make another step, do you think, this year? I think so. To get the, w- the wins they did last year was uh, was a massive relief for Honda, and it's you know, super important for Formula 1 that they were able to get those results because, you know, Honda, their longer-term future in Formula 1 is not certain. Um, we know from some of the other contracts that Mercedes will continue to be engine suppliers, whether they continue to have their own team or not, still under debate. But th- there is a very changing uh, world and economy and it's changing so quickly because of the pressures on electrification. You know, everyone, all the politicians are jumping on a bandwagon, which should make everyone, you, you know, from, from a historical point of view, that should be an indication that maybe we should be looking elsewhere, if all the politicians are unanimous in their agreement that we're going electric. And there's, that's a whole other topic that we could discuss at length about whether that's the right thing for the future. There's no question the world is changing, and it has to change but pure electrification and uh, if you actually look at the, the the effect on the environment from design through to recycling, is not the save the planet solution that politicians and Greens would, would want us to believe Another young guy, just to,
2: to talk briefly about, obviously you live in Monaco local boy son of your hairdresser uh, Charles Leclerc and um, it was mega what he achieved last year and he's given your old Red Bull colleague Sebastian Vettel a bit of a hard time uh, I mean, is this is this going to be the simple three-way battle that we see? Is it going to be Charles, Max and Lewis? I think that
3: Vettel has the opportunity to rebound we've seen it before when he was last year at Red Bull he had a fairly average season alongside Daniel and, and he came back from that so there is the potential for him to come back but there is no question that he's met his match Charles Leclerc, is he? supremely talented racing driver the only thing he lacks is experience and that means he'll make a few mistakes along the way but uh, Sebastian Vettel has a lot of experience and he he made quite a few mistakes last year so but what I think is interesting and you mentioned his mum you know his mum cut my hair for several years and at no point did I know she was Charles Leclerc's mum she would you know her English is not great so we weren't having a big conversation but she understood that I was in Grand Prix racing and I was travelling and I'd be going off to races but she never said oh and by the way my son is in Formula 2 so when I saw her at a Grand Prix for the first time and she was in the paddock I was like oh why are you here and she went oh, my son's racing I went who's your son she went, Charles Leclerc I mean you never told me. So that shows the sort of discretion of the family. So it's great to see that you know from relatively okay he's grown up in Monaco but it's you know it's normal working family and it's great to see that normal working people can can suddenly come through to be superstars of sport.
2: Now uh, we should talk a little bit more about racing but in regards to W Series because you've been what are you non-executive chairman of yes, W Series. Exactly. So that's gained quite a lot of traction. It's got a couple of support races for Formula One this year in uh, Austin, Texas and Mexico City.
3: Honestly, what do you think of the whole W Series thing to date? Well look, I was a believer in the idea of supporting a, a championship which will really promote women in motorsport because if you look at the existing formats, and although women have been able to compete against men, history shows it hasn't worked in really bringing enough women in. It, it, for various reasons those that come up through karting that maybe have been supported by family once they get to cars they realize it's more expensive more difficult to raise funding and a lot of talented women have not either had the opportunity or, have had, or lost the opportunity so quite simply if we keep doing the same thing then we can expect the same results which is very few women racing at the highest level and for me w series is not about trying to find a Female Formula One driver, because there's, there's more than Formula One where you can be a professional. What is a professional? It means you're paid to do the job. So, you know, my family experience of my sister being a very talented kart racer lost the opportunity to really explore that because my career was taking off, you know, when I joined Paul Stewart Racing and all the focus went on to me. So I've always regretted that she didn't get her opportunity. That's why I'm behind it. That's why I support it. And that's why I believe that we will, over time, bring more women into motorsport and allow them to have professional careers. If you look at what we've achieved in one year, everybody knows about W Series, whether it's the Formula One drivers, the FIA have acknowledged it as a championship that will get super license points. Uh, partner sponsors we've got Rocket as one of the major partners of the, the championship they're involved with Williams as a title partner so there's no question that with free-to-air television uh, W Series was the second most motorsport in Britain last year behind Formula 1 in front of MotoGP because it's on pay-per-view in BT Sport and four times more coverage eyeballs available in the UK than Formula E, which we can all agree has changed perceptions quite significantly despite not being you know technology advanced or as technology advanced as, as Formula One. So I'm really proud that what we've done, I was really keen and with Sean Wadsworth, uh, the the founder, Catherine Baum-Muir who's the CEO, you know, we've got Dave Ryan who was many years at McLaren running the sporting side, Matt Bishop, uh formerly Haymarket and the communications director at McLaren running the communications side so you know we've really put together a great team of people to give it a world class opportunity and in our second year we were offered several slots as support race to Formula 1 because Formula 1 recognised the importance of diversity and female empowerment but we quite frankly couldn't afford to be doing those in our second year and we already had a contract with DTM so what we've agreed is to do two races Mexico and Austin as the Formula One support races, two big races in the Grand Prix calendar, and I'm really excited about that because it shows our statement of intent of what we want to do to put these women front and centre. And the racing was great, you know. And having the, uh, uh, you know, Jamie Chadwick come back for a second year and Vaiskivisa and various others. Hopefully, what we can do then is, like in Formula One, build up name recognition with the, the emotion of the sport, which is the individuals behind the wheel. For all
2: the talk that executives put into giving women more opportunity, the fact remains that you haven't ended up with a big queue of sponsors. So, what's going on there? Do you think, in terms of, you know, the sponsors are they are they just waiting to see? I mean, if everyone sits and waits, nothing's going to happen. Somebody needs to get off the fence. Rocket have obviously done that, yeah. but you need more than one sponsor to secure the championships' long-term future.
3: Yeah, I think it's been a little bit chicken and egg. The presentations that we've gone to, then a lot of the larger companies, they, they, they get it. They, they understand why it has a place to uh, within the motorsports community. But they, they kind of really wanted proof of concept in terms of eyeballs and people watching and, and engaging with it to ultimately the bottom line is for any of these executives in a role where they're having to decide where to spend their marketing dollar, they they, they need to do it more than just on a belief. They need to have some sort of evidence that it it, it is getting the response that we believed it would get but so it... second year now it becomes easier because we've and the fact that we've got growth onto the Formula One platform as well is another big opportunity so the figures are there now we, we know what the social media reach was we know what the viewing figures were globally so we have something tangible that we didn't have a year before but I think you're absolutely right frankly I am surprised that more of the partners that already are involved in Formula One haven't felt almost a duty to back up their 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 mission statements in their companies of female empowerment trying to get more women on their boards and, and in senior positions that they, ha- they aren 't backing it up with a relatively modest investment in a platform that really shows that they 're putting the money where the mouth is
2: let 's talk about your family I mean you do get to see them now and again your wife Karen your son Dayton mm. and Dayton they started carting and so how 's that going and is that is that a big future for him?
3: Well, got to first of all acknowledge Karen. We've been together fifteen years, and so she's seen the transition from a Grand Prix driver to this new uh, post uh, racing career, which is still very much around racing. But she's been incredibly supportive and never ever questions when I'm putting time and effort into business. She might occasionally uh, have to sort of feel my collar if if I'm over indulging in the. Uh, You know celebrations of life and she might go, well actually was that really good just of your time when you're busy the rest of the time, you should maybe be spending that at home, so she's fantastic and supportive on that, but as you mentioned uh, we have a son who's declared that he wants to be a racing driver, now it would seem an obvious thing that he's going karting because his father used to race, but as Karen is my witness, at no point did I encourage him, I didn't buy him a kart I didn't mention racing it was his motivation to come and say that he wanted wants to go karting. And I said, why? Why do you want to go karting? And he was like, well, how else do I learn to be a Grand Prix driver? So a little bit of my heart sunk at that point because having spent years just as a spectator or taking money out of motorsport, I'm now in the situation of having to reinvest. Uh, and so he's, he's got a kart and he's done six races. And interesting, someone asked Karen about whether she was nervous about him racing or was she more nervous and she, she made a comment which I thought was, was quite funny in that uh, she's only got one son so she's more nervous about that which would rather imply that the fact that I'm her husband she, you know you can she, always, get you, always get another husband another husband yeah so um, anyway I thought that was quite I quite
2: love good. the fact that Karen is keeping you on your toes DC. You yeah,
3: oh absolutely yeah no she's, she's great and um
2: and, of course, he's continuing the DC yes. moniker. So you, your father and your my, grandfather?
3: My, my father and my brother are both DCs. I'm a DC, obviously. My brother and my father are called Duncan. David, obviously, for me. And the reason Dayton is called Dayton is because our uh, transport business, which is uh, over 100 years old, is was started by great great-grandfather called Hayton thought Hayton is a Scottish name, so quite simply, we took the H off Hayton, put a D on, and that's where Dayton became Dayton. And he's he's racing. I'll be with him uh, the week before going down to Melbourne, another kart race. And it's interesting because in the beginning, I just was want you know wanting him to enjoy it and be safe and go around. But I did find myself becoming a bit of a racing dad at the previous race a couple of weeks ago, where I didn't think he did as well as I felt he could. And I said, like, son, can we go and have a chat? So we went into the car and I said, I, I really don't think that was as good as you could do. And I feel really bad because he burst into tears. And I wasn't sure whether he was crying because he was disappointed that I was disappointed or whether he was crying because he knew as well it wasn't as good as he could do. And in the end, I said to him, look, I don't, I don't want you to cry. I don't want you, you know, the, I want us to enjoy this process together but it just seemed to me that I've seen you do better than that. And he said, I tried my best. And I said, well, look, if you said you tried your best, then we'll never have to have this conversation again because I'll never be disappointed if you're trying your best. But you've got to always try to do your best because otherwise you're not competing, you're just going round in circles. And as I know from my career, I was not the best driver, but I always tried my best. DC, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. He was being
1: very modest there, David Coulthard.
2: I'll tell you a little story about DC. He raced for a McLaren for nine seasons. Longest ever contracted McLaren driver. And he actually talks about the fact that he realised that particularly in qualifying, he wasn't as quick as Mika Hakkinen. So he actually had to think, how do I make myself valuable to this racing team given that I'm probably not going to start from pole position very often with Hakkinen and Schumacher uh, against me? So he decided to make himself of invaluable benefit to the sponsors by doing all the corporate events he said mika hated them so he said i used to turn up he used to talk to all the sponsors turn up at the cocktail parties do all the stuff and he said whenever contract renewal came up ron dennis would say well dc we're not really very sure about the results but all the sponsors would go we gotta have him he's amazing god you know we'll have mika win the race on sunday but dc on saturday night over the dinner i mean he's just amazing
1: but that's really clever because so many sports people wouldn't understand, wouldn't I mean, understandably, they they want to score goals, runs, win Olympic goals and so on. But that side of the business prolongs your career and means you become like Jackie Stewart, you become invaluable to sponsors, which then mean that you keep earning as opposed to you get to the end of your career, you're pushed out of a dressing room, changing room, garage, whatever it might be. What do you do next? And so many people, and you've seen it in so many sports, they fall apart because they don't know what to do next. But if you've worked your life out like David Coulthard, like Jackie Stewart and others, and like you're Lewis okay. Hamilton, Lewis and,
2: Hamilton's doing it as well. Yep. And I'll tell you something else, and this is maybe for another episode of our podcast, is we should talk to some sports people about why they were knobs when they were professionals when they retire they wonder why the phone stops ringing the phone stops ringing because they haven't actually prepared for the future and I get a lot of drivers call me and say why do you work with David Coulthard I mean why don't you book me to come and work with you and the answer is if you were a knob while you were a driver and no one really views you as being a particularly good person to present to and actually don't really enjoy doing that Why would we book you now?
1: That's the sound of Mark Gallagher, a man. This is the sound of Jonathan Edger, also a man. But we have someone who knows David Coulthard as well because she worked alongside him in the W Series commentary box last season. Claire Cottingham, are you feeling safe and happy and welcome?
0: It's very close in here, isn't it? We're
2: all very, very close. What's our coronavirus policy in <laughs> yeah, this every, studio this yeah. <laughs> morning? I mean, if, if one of us has got it, we've all got it. Have you washed your hands? I've washed my hands several times this morning. You'll be pleased okay, to know good. I was brought up properly. Claire. Yeah.
1: Just don't have one of those stupid face masks, OK? They do absolutely nothing.
2: That's did, much... you see the of the lady, did you see the picture of the lady on the London bus yesterday with a bucket over her head? She actually had that was a, me. <laughs> <laughs> she actually had a bucket over her head, and she had like taped it to her jacket. Well, okay. I was
0: really hungover, are. right? Anyway, it's just what I it. needed to, <laughs> <laughs> to get through the day. Right.
2: right, David
1: Coulthard. How was it? How was last year with um, with with DC in the commentary box?
0: Yeah, great. Um, David Coulthard is a lovely person. He's um, he's energetic and uh, knowledgeable, and he's all right. And he buys you wine.
2: He buys what d- Had you met him before? Have um, you worked
0: with him before? I pre I hadn't worked with him before no. Okay. I'd only ever seen him in the uh, in the F1 paddock when I was working for other people and um he's always very friendly. Um I got a yeah, he's very he's a frank person. He'll always tell you the truth, which I quite admire.
1: That's the th- one thing. I mean that's one thing when I work for the BBC TV F1. He he always said that's exactly how they wanted the debriefs in McLaren. I mean it always seemed to be quite not so much negative, but there was never the that was good. What was bad? What was wrong? Where can I improve? It's like, yeah, well just sometimes take on board that was good, okay, and then you can improve here, but that was good. But no, brutal debriefs and that in a sense, surely in the work that you do, the management consultancy and so on, too often people just want to be said pats on the back, you're brilliant you're brilliant you're brilliant. Mm. But sometimes you need to be told improve here. But it's a way of putting it across, be constructive rather than just destructive.
2: Claire, Matt Bishop. Director of Communications at W Series sent me a very kind invitation last year to come to one of the W Series races. I couldn't make it; I had date conflicts with every single event. How were they?
0: A W Series as a whole, or yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the the setup for W Series is very, very, as you would imagine, was a very professional setup. The races were great fun. It really became a little community. You know, as anyone knows that's been in a paddock or worked in a paddock, you start to look after each other and, and you build relationships. And I've stayed in touch with a lot of the drivers afterwards as well. You know, I speak to Alice Powell quite often and Sarah Moore. And it's a lovely paddock. It's a, it's a nice place to be.
2: Is the dynamic different between female racing drivers out of the car? Are they all much more matey than guys out of the car? I mean, the guys out of the car can be matey, but there can also be a bit of tension, a bit of edge between them all. I mean, is the camaraderie different or is it very similar?
0: It's very different, actually. It's something that I really did notice. It's hard to know because I think with F1 drivers, they are all mates. They all share each other's private jets and they you see them all on Instagram together. However, when they're in the paddock you wouldn't see that they're not really chatty and they don't all go and have coffee no, with each all other and things like that parallel
2: existences yeah, in formula 1 and i yeah. think
0: the difference is as well with w series is there's no teams so the competition is slightly different they're all on the same team essentially they're driving for themselves but they're all on the same team so and also, with W Series, these are a lot of drivers that might have thought they were never going to do it. You know, Alice Powell was out of racing for four years. She's works for her dad's plumbing business. You know, she didn't think she was ever going to be racing again. She drove
2: for my team in GP3. She drove for Stadius Grand Prix yeah. in uh, GP3 and had a tough time. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, they spent every penny they had yeah. to fund that drive and then everything stalled afterwards. And it was gutting to see. And I have to... I mean, Alice wouldn't know this, but I was delighted when she got back into racing with W Series. And it's actually then enabled her to go on and do some other things as well, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, we've seen what well, Jamie Chadwick and Alice both were out in Marrakesh doing the Formula E rookie test. So it's been really great to see, you know, these drivers not only being known for W Series, because the point of W Series was never, it has to be, you can only race in W Series. The point was to give a platform to these drivers who had the talent to go off and then do other things. You know, I sort of feel like if W Series is there in 10 years, maybe it's not done its job Mm. because they should be feeding through Mm. with everybody else rather than having their own championship.
1: Lewis Hamilton to win his seventh title. Foregone conclusion or not? We're going to talk to Mike Gascon about this in a minute. We'll hear from him. But do you just sense that with David Coulthard that that's it? No mention of Valtteri Bottas, for example?
2: DC is very clear about the fact that Lewis is the man, and he's in good shape. And as I I think I mentioned in my interview with him, I did an event with Lewis Hamilton in Singapore at the beginning of February, and he blew me away. I mean, he was extraordinary. Why? How? Uh, I mean, he's 35 years old. He looks 25. His physique, his condition, his mental uh, strength, the way he articulated his focus on this year, the way he regards Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, he sees them as... As him, in, back in 2007, you know, he sees them as these 22-year-olds. Here's the difference. He's won six World Championships. He knows exactly how to do it. And you know, Jonathan, because you cover a lot, of, a lot of sports. You've covered lots of different sports during your career. When someone gets to the top and learns the trick about sustaining that performance, it's indefinable. I mean, they've got something... That's ju- the
1: measure of greatness. If you can stay there again and again and again, yeah. which is why Sir Alex Ferguson's doing so well and why everyone's talking about, say, this Liverpool team with Jurgen Klopp. They've got so much more to achieve. I know that's not motorsport, but the point is, yeah. they've, they've not done the title just yet. They've got to keep it going again and again and again.
0: What I found fascinating with Lewis is how much he's changed I remember interviewing him for the first time. Uh, it was for the BBC, and I remember being terrified because he yeah. has this presence when he walks in. Everything's just, you know, he's Lewis Hamilton, and and he he has he is immaculately
2: and, presented.
0: Oh, I mean, like incredible! Like I don't know how he has that much time in the morning, and then throughout the years, he's really warmed. Like, and I don't know if that's just me. Maybe I'm warming to him as well, but he's he's really chilled out. But but here's
2: the thing, Claire. He actually said to me, I'm inherently. Like me? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) He said to me, I'm an inherently shy person.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think he
2: is. And he actually has to learn what you're like. And I mean, I noticed when I was with him on stage, we were on stage for an hour, eye contact is really important with Lewis Mm. because he, he wants to look at you, see what you're really like as a person. Can he trust you, what you're saying to him? Because, I mean, he's got, he's had so much trolling online. You know, there's there's a, a bizarre minority of Formula One fans who have this hate thing going on with Lewis Hamilton. And the thing is, he's a fantastic guy. And he's incredibly down-to-earth on a one-to-one basis. And he cares deeply about the things that he cares about. I mean, we, we did a whole thing about the environment and animals and all the rest of it. And I can tell you from every element of what he said, his body language, he is genuine. He is the authentic article in the things that he's passionate about. He's in an incredibly good space. And the thing is, Jonathan, it is quite hard to see a Max or a Charles beating that unless they are given a superior car, and I don't think Mercedes have much to worry about in that regard. And on that note, you
1: didn't mention Sebastian Vettel. That tells you all you need to know <laughs> about where you think he's going to be and maybe uh, David Coulthard would say the same thing. I mean, let's see where whether he'll actually, well he'll last the season but is he going to be a contender? I don't think so. Now, uh, there are plenty of things which uh, I like that which we I've raised with uh, Mike Gascoigne who epitomizes what we're talking about. Why we're here. Boats cars and aeroplanes he's involved in all of them and you'll understand exactly why we went to talk to him because he explains so well how he's worked in all the areas but he's also been a mountaineer he's a businessman he sailed across the atlantic as well solo extraordinary man we met in his pub in the cotswolds what was interesting too here was a man who has done so well in formula One, and yet actually that wasn't his real ambition
4: when i came into f1 it wasn't what i wanted to do it wasn't the be all and end. i wanted to be an engineer i loved competitive sports and when I sort of randomly saw an advertisement for an aerodynamicist McLaren. I thought, well, actually, that that hits the spot. But at the time I was climbing, I was thinking about sort of semi-professionally now, climbing. When
1: you say climbing, that's not just anyone's climbing. You, go, you went up the Himalayas.
4: Yeah, I, I did seven seasons in the Alps and then a couple of expeditions in the Himalayas. So anything I've done, I've committed to. I love sailing. My dad taught me to sail when I was very young on the Norfolk Broads. And luckily I've been able to do that recently. But... Anything I did, I wanted. But I loved engineering as well, and I wanted to be an engineer, and I wanted to design things. I wanted to hand-on design things, which nowadays is very rare. And 20 years ago, when I was 25 30 years ago, when I started now, in F1, you could still be a hands-on designer. You made a car each year. And so I lucked in absolutely to the perfect thing for a young engineer, who loved competitive sport to do. So I was very, very lucky and blessed. Here we are, first
1: race coming up in uh, the new 2020 one season. How much have you dialed into, watched, kept across uh, F1 testing in Barcelona? First race fast approaching. Our Mercedes the, the team to beat? Are you still excited in a different way, because once upon a time you are on the pit
4: wall, now you're from afar, but you're doing lots of other things to do with engineering. It's it's strange. I mean, I still love it, because it was such an important part of my life for 25 years. And I love the sport, I love the drama, and that never changes. All the rubbish that's spoken about it. People like you, who can talk for hours and hours, (laughs) and basically make it up. I absolutely love it, because at the end of the day, when the lights go out... They used to go green in our day, but there they go out. Do you know, I always used to say, F1 drivers, you talk about them, when the lights go out, there's nothing more you can do to help them. They're off down to the first corner at 200 miles an hour and they've got to sort it out. And that drama is real drama. It's like any fantastic bit of sport. It's like the finale in in ashes cricket or it's like trying to get across the try line for a grand slam or win the world cup you know it's absolute drama and sport and it's individuals doing doing it better than anyone else can do it and that's fantastic what you have in f1 is the technological aspect in that it's a team sport because the team are designing that car so i love this time of year where everyone's obviously trying to do their best You've got the war of words. They're all promising. Um, you know, read any press release; they're all going to win. They're all going to be fantastic. You know, you used to do that as well because you can't not say that, can you? Really? Y- you have sponsors. You have. Anything, you've got to play that game, and you all hope. You all hope against hope it's going to go well. So it's a fantastic time. Do I have the same thing for it? No. I mean, I loved my 25 years. I was totally engrossed in it when I left it I didn't particularly want to leave it at the time I did now I'm very pleased I did because there's a whole lot more world out there and in F1 you do travel around in circles both in the races and in the whole thing so I loved my life in it and I'm absolutely engrossed I sit down I watch every race when I can but actually I don't mind if I miss one because I went to 380 of them or whatever so someone said, oh would you like to go to a race I've seen quite a few I don't particularly need to go on but they are great drama and great theatre and, and the technology it's different from my time, it's moved on it's at a much higher level but it's still fantastic, and I love that.
1: What about this Mercedes dual access system? Are you any good on that? Could you could
4: you sort of give us a layman's? Oh, no, you're shaking your head. Layman's view of it. It's just another thing. I mean, it's the whole point about. I mean, what will it be? Will it be half a second? No, of course it would, because if it was, everyone would have done it. It will be a small. Yeah, you said that you could have said that about Braun and their double diffuser, couldn't you? With Jensen Button in 2009. Yeah, of course. I mean, but it it'll be a small game, but. The one thing is you can only bring something like that. If it's a tenth, everyone will say, well, that's too marginal, wouldn't it? But when you're Mercedes on top of your game, you can do it because they're on top of the game, they can cope. If the system doesn't work, they can go back. They're on top of their game. And it's another tenth on top of their game. And everyone will say, well, it will distract. No, if it's good, they'll use it, and that's why they're the best, and that's why they're dominating. And everyone will look at Formula One and say, oh, another years of mercedes domination or whatever formula 1 has ever been thus you know whether it was williams in the 80s whether it was claren before that whether it was red bull whether whoever it is it goes through these periods of domination and that's because it's about teams teams of engineers and people not just drivers because if you could just win by hiring a driver You'd just then go and get Hamilton, you'd put him in another team and he'd win. And he couldn't because he's not in the best car. And that's what I as an engineer loved about the sport. And you build engineering teams over periods of time. You don't build them overnight. And anyone who's tried to do that has has failed. So you've got to grow and you've got to build. And then you stay on top for a few years. And then your team gets stolen from you. You know that all these engineers get poached, which I like. I was poached regularly, and my salary went up because of it, and I loved it. It was fantastic. But that's the game, and I love the game. I love that interaction. So you'll always get domination. But who's coming up? Who's going to break the mold? Can you see anyone doing that out of interest? I think it's getting closer. I mean, Mercedes, the engine formula, I think, with just the three, has maybe limited that because Mercedes have always had that edge on the engine. I'd like to think Red Bull and Honda could get closer. I'm not convinced. You've got someone like Max, who Verstappen, who who clearly is something special. I bet you'd love to work with him, wouldn't you? Yeah, much more than his dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. That's a good point. I mean, Jos was a lovely bloke, and uh, and he and he had flashes of it, but his son clearly has it, and I think he gets all of that from his mum, uh, who was a great, beautiful girl, and and fantastically quick, Carter. But um, people like that—that's what makes this sport, you know—and. Certainly, I think Red Bull and Honda will challenge more regularly. Whether they can do that for a championship, I don't think so.
1: What about the team aspect? Because that's fascinating. What you were saying there—so many people, so many critics, people maybe who don't understand Formula One or don't know it—just say, "Oh, it's T," you know, it's Mercedes because they've got a good engine, or it's Lewis Hamilton, that's it. How important is a team? Because you—you've alluded to already. You know, you play cricket, you played rugby, you a lot of sport everywhere. How important is a team? Is a good team? When you work with a really good team in F one, how much does that? Count for an
4: extra tenth, two tenths, three tenths, whatever. Uh, it could be too, it's much more than that. When I went started at McLaren, they were dominant and they had this picture of the drawing office and they cut out, so it was the drawing office from like 84, 85, and they cut out the people that had left. And when I went there in 89, there was like one or two people that had left. And two, three years later, when I left, that picture was almost empty. And that was at the stage they started losing. And that, for me, really summed up a thing. It's about teams of people. You don't copy in F1, because if you copy, who are you copying? Who's the winner copying? They can't be copying anyone. They've got to be leading. So when I went to teams, it was all about leading from design. And you develop your own in-house style of how you're going to do it. And you've got to put that team together and do that and build that up and learn and get better. Which is something that happened, for instance, when I went to Benetton Renault in two thousand and one, and I left in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. But they won the championship five and six. But that team was there. That they didn't step change from when I left to do it better. Bob Bell took over from me, and that curve just continued because we'd set up the team, and that had two, three years, you know, dominant years. And that was typical of how you do that, and that to me as an engineer is what's intriguing about it. And it's very difficult to do. You know, you look in the nineties when Ferrari never used to do that; they used to try and buy in John Barnard and buy in a load of engineers. And after two years, they change it all again because it didn't work. So they and that never. You have to be longer term than that uh, with engineering. You look at someone like um, James Allison, who's gone to Mercedes who's done a fantastic job and is, is one of the best design- technical directors I think I've ever seen. Bob Bell, for me, who was the guy that first employed me at McLaren, was was a great technical director, and I learned so much from him.
1: Harvey Posslesway. Where's he? Harvey I thought, come on, this is the man who I
4: thought he was the mentor. A, that's some different type. That's something different. I mean, Harvey actually wasn't the greatest team. What Harvey was was a fantastic engineer, a cerebral enthusiastic lover of engineering, much like I'd consider myself to be, and a lover of life. So actually in Harvey and myself I think you see very similar people, although I was never as good as he was. But he loved engineering. He and he loved engineering. We used to race really hard and at the end of the day he'd pour a glass of wine and he'd pick it up and say, Well, it wasn't a great day, but it's a nice glass of wine and, you know but Six o'clock tomorrow we go again and you push. And He loved life and he loved the sport. Wonderful man. Just picking up
1: your point then about the value of team, how did you find it then when out of Formula One you're then into designing a a race boat, a boat, you are so much on your own. So how did you miss? How did you react without that huge team environment? A lot of responsibility, a lot of uh, pressure in that sense but you wanted to do well. You never do things by half. So how how much did you drive yourself on? How much was the motivation? What was the working process to get to compete in a solo transatlantic race, which is a world away from
4: being on the Formula 1 pit wall? I think two things. I think, one, I'd always wanted to do that. So when I was kind of forced out of the Caterham Formula 1 team, after the court case with Force India, which wasn't something that I wanted to do, and I didn't want to leave Formula 1 at the time, but I went to do the road car project for the, the, the Caterham Alpine project, which is something I, I wanted to do because I wanted to do other things. And when I did that, my partner, now my wife Sylvie, knew that I'd always wanted to sail. And, wanted to, and we knew Alex Thompson from uh, Alex Thompson Racing, Hugo Boss Boat. She took me down there and basically said, you know, Mike's always wanted to sail, solo across the Atlantic and race offshore, teach him how to do it. And it was a funny thing because we went out sailing, and they said, "Well, he's 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 a pretty average sailor." And I hadn't done a lot of offshore. They said, "But the big question is, you know, mental. Can he sail solo offshore? Can he can he deal with all the mental side?" And actually, Sylvia she said, "Oh, but that's just a given. It's Mike you're talking about. You know, he's you know he'll be all of that's easy. The man with the nickname of Rottweiler. Yeah. <laughs> can you just teach him how to sail properly?" And they said, well, that bit's easy, you know, is the other bit. So actually that, I, I'd i always wanted to do it. Uh, and I did the solo transatlantic. I then raced with...
1: You, just, you can't just throw that away. You did the solo... Tra- I mean, how was that? Because I've seen some of the YouTube videos. I'm scared. Now, I never thought I'd hear Mike Gascoigne say, I'm scared.
4: Yeah, you, you're in a situation you don't know. Um, I think I look back on it when I did it. I mean, I'd only done, I think, something like 15 days of training on the boat. I'd never been on the boat on my own. Um, before you went? Yeah, before we cool. got off in Cascais. So, From Portugal to Grenada? Yeah, it was 17 days. So I think, um, yeah, there was a lot to learn along the way. I did okay, but I was a little bit naive and a little bit of a, a novice. But I did okay, and I, learned, and I got it very safely across, which uh, obviously my partner Sylvie was very, very keen on. But it's part of learning and challenging yourself. And I think that's got to either be in you or it isn't. And I think when I look at new people who come into Formula One, young engineers, and I'm looking for people. What Harvey saw in me is that that, that sort of thing is in you. Go get them, basically. Yeah, and you look at, you know, I was never a winner at anything. I was, you know, just averagely mediocre at most things. But I did quite a lot, and I'm proud of that but you need to have the drive you need to want you know when you're sitting down in a room and something needs picking up and take it up are you the guy that stands up and takes it up or do you let someone else do it and and i think that's true of everything in life are you the person that gets up and do it and i've always been a person that gets up and does it to what be did honest.
1: you learn about yourself then
4: sailing's like anything is just avoid all the problems Make sure you're being quick. It's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Yeah, but that's experience, and that's good. But that's also true of anything in life. So in engineering, in racing, avoid the problems. Steer around them. Make sure they don't happen. Plan for them, which is, I think, something form well, Like the what-if, basically. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing. If you say, what was key in my life? What if F1 give me? It's the you plan for what-if. You plan for everything. So you you tackle everything with a real pace. Not aggression, but... you you go for it and you plan for every eventuality and when they come up you deal with them so nothing's going to stop you you look at other industries that I'm now working in in aerospace and sort of difficult to get thrown in and it's just kind of like oh well we can't do that then no 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 we can do it we've just got to do this we've got to do that and we go around that way and we do this and we get them to do and they'll do a report and then we're there and they don't have that outlook. We're in F1, that's absolutely essential. And although F1's changed a lot, I think that's still the same in F1. It's this, and it breeds people that just think, if I can't do it that way, well, then what's the other way I can do it? How, do I, how quickly can I find another way just so I just do it? And that's the best thing I ever learned and what I really enjoyed about F1.
1: Race car or racing yacht? I mean, America's Cup, for example. You've got Ben Hainsey doing his stuff. Adrian Ewing did a little bit of his, uh, helping out as well. Martin Whitmarsh was involved in the last one, former...
4: Not particularly um, successfully.
1: OK, McLaren uh, team principal. But, I mean, does that float your boat?
4: <laughs> I think in some ways, but do what you're good at. And when I see these things that so-and-so is going to design, uh, there are very, very good yacht designers out there. And it would be entirely naive to think that you can come from something like designing racing cars and lay the hand of god and do it better than full-time professional yacht designers that's not going to happen i think what we do when i started my company mgi and now moved on to vertical advanced engineering what we try and do is take the lessons from formula one and apply them we don't think we can do them you know we're just applying what we've done from f1 in terms of lightweight composite design for instance that can make something better we don't think we can design a new boat or a new plane we've got techniques to make it lighter stiffer stronger better but we don't think we can do the core business and i think it's very naive when people sort of say oh let's go you know mike why don't you go and design a boat i don't know how to design a boat It would be naive to think i did
1: Okay, then. But what about, let's pick up the mention of You mentioned the company, the vertical aerospace engineering. What's the goal there now? Electric aircraft, which is, I'm sure, many, many companies, airline companies as much as Boeing, etc., aerospace, etc., they would love to know how far down that road are you? Are you a major competitor? Are you a major innovator?
4: I think all of that, yes. So um, we did some work for a guy, Stephen Fitzpatrick, who is owner of Over Energy, but also uh, owned the Manor F1 team for a year. And working with him, he's a guy with a great vision in terms of clean energy, carbon-free energy, and also carbon-free aerospace and air travel. And it's kind of the holy grail of the aerospace industry this air taxi solving our inner city transport problems with battery powered vertical takeoff air taxis basically there's something like 600 startup companies all trying to do it your Boeings, your Airbuses, and, and you know i think if you go and stand outside and look up in the sky and wait for one to fly by you may be waiting quite a long time because they're not up there and there's a reason for that and that's because with battery technology and the weight of batteries and the the weight penalty. You've got to make a very lightweight plane. And that's a very delicate formula to work, and people are struggling to do it. And I think the industry that knows how to do that and design incredibly lightweight carbon structures is not aerospace. It's Formula One. Because Formula One is a very unique business model because it's not a commercial business model. Formula One spends money on making things lightweight to get incredibly small gains that commercially would not be viable. No, because you'd never get your money back for doing it. But Formula One does it because of the investment and the, the, the return the companies there for get in terms of media and all of that. In engineering terms, you can never afford to do that. So what you need to do is take those advances and apply them in other industries and that's what I'm trying to do in vertical aerospace and that's what Stephen Fitzpatrick um, came to me and asked me to do for him because he identified it having been in Formula 1 and um, electric aerospace. So I think we can solve this weight problem. Formula 1 is uniquely positioned to solve this weight problem and that's what I find as an ex aerodynamicist. I started as head of aerodynamics. I did my first degree and PhD in aerodynamics at Cambridge. So designing an aeroplane a is a, was always a great goal of mine. But I've got a unique set of skills and access to a unique pool talent around the Oxford area in UK that has, has all these Formula One teams. All your F one friends? Yeah, um, all the right ones. Um, <laughs> so, um, but. There's a pool of expertise that can do something that aerospace is struggling to do. And what's the schedule for this? And
1: how soon are we going to see?
4: Oh, I think you're going to see your plane doing this, that. Vertical yeah. takeoff, vertical landing. I think you'll see it this year. Really? Yes, doing that. I think it's, it's a very progressive market, and the first in will be. Do you reckon you'll be first? Um, one of the first two or three, yes, certainly. I think we've got a unique opportunity, and I think if anyone can do it, we will. One final point, just
1: above you in this uh, very nice uh, mousetrap pub. Uh, there's a, a Fernando Alonso helmet. How would you come by that? Did you buy it or did he say thanks? Ferdy said, Mike, you've been a brilliant uh, technical director. All yours.
4: I think if you read the visor, it says thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I
1: can't see it hear from here. Oh, yeah, it does, actually. no I do. Yeah, hey, nice, nice. Good
4: question. Yeah, so when Fernando drove for us um, and that at the end of, uh, I think, his first season in Renault, uh, he gave me that helmet. And uh, so it's nice to have things like that. There's a uh, Yarno Trulli helmet somewhere around and, and that. So nice reminders, but I think always be challenged by the next thing.
1: Nice answer. We're going to end it there. And, I, I, you know, one, my, up, my big achievement of the day, you've only had about two sips of your wine. Now, that, is that Harvey Pothersway would have got through at least a bottle while I was talking to him. But anyway, so what? Well Mike Gascoigne, great to see you again.
2: Thank you very much, Jonathan. Lovely to talk to you. I think you enjoyed that conversation, didn't you? I did. I did a, a fantastic event with him in London a few years ago. So we had a I had a big client at the London Business School and they wanted a lecture on failure. And I phoned Mike, uh, which was quite I bet he liked that. He loved it. Mike, I said, said "Hi oh, like Mike, failure. can you come and give us a chat on what it's like to fail?" And actually but specifically the thing I wanted him to come and talk about Toyota came into Formula 1, spent 8 years, spent a couple of billion dollars, never won a race, disappeared. Yeah, it turned out the Toyota way wasn't the winning way. And uh, Mike was technical director. Certainly
1: and in Formula One, because actually in rallying, you've got to say they are very—they're supreme,
2: and they're doing you know double in the. Who's world interested in rallying? We're Ooh. talking Formula One here. I like yeah. rallying. Yeah, I don't mind Sorry. rallying. I had a couple of good years. Anyway, we'll no, get him back. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Formula One's a pinnacle of mo- world motorsport. Please send your complaints to Jonathan Ledyard at. <laughs> At the controls.com. Um, anyway, the uh, the reality is that uh, he, he came and he, he was fantastic. He came and he talked about why the team spirit wasn't there at Toyota, why it took so long to get a decision made from Tokyo. I mean, the audience were rapt. Everyone was like, This guy's a legend. So he's a great guy to have a beer with and have a good chat about any of these topics. He's passionate about all of them. I think he's a great guy. Actually, I think he's a loss to Formula One. I think a lot of teams could do with someone like him on like an advisory panel or helping them to understand maybe how they could be going in a better direction. Very clever guy.
0: Because I don't think people talk about failures enough and how much you can learn from it, actually. And you're smiling, but I'm I'm being quite genuine. Like, I think you no, should no, absolutely... No, I'm smiling because yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I could
2: talk about failure for quite a long time, but anyway. Yeah, I was
0: going to say. <laughs> but also, at the time, how how hard it is to be going through it. So someone like Sebastian Vettel at the moment is going to be going through... He knows he's not doing well. He knows he's not winning championships. He doesn't need us to be telling him, by the way, you know, mate, you're not doing so well. He's like, yeah, I'm aware. I've got this young gun, Charles Leclerc, alongside me. He doesn't need to know that he's failing. He doesn't need to hear that. And what he's going through at the moment, it'll only be in a couple of years' time that he can actually look back and go... Okay, well I've learned from that.
2: Question for you Claire. Mm-hmm. I mean you've been in the paddock, you've seen Sebastian, you've interviewed him in the pen and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Do you think he has the demeanor of someone who's questioning? Yeah. His place his place in the world?
0: I I don't know about his place in the world, maybe in the, <laughs> the paddock. I don't I place don't know in the because, Formula 1 world. Yeah, I absolutely. I I do. And I said last year when I was uh, working in the paddock, he felt to me like he was a broken person. I felt the passion had gone completely.
1: And we've got this Ferrari story now, which I want to get you on, because as much as being very successful with Jordan, you also were Chief Executive Officer for Cosworth
2: Engines. No, I wasn't. I was Managing Director, actually. (laughs) But there we go. Anyway, that's fine. splitting hairs? You know, it's not an important man. I I appreciate the promotion, but, um, you know... Ferrari Power
1: Unit. Let's get on to it. Let's put him on the spot then. Ferrari Power Unit, not operating within the limits of FIA regulations. The FIA, and I'm quoting from their press release just recently, was not fully satisfied, but decided that further action would not necessarily result in a conclusive case due to the complexity of the matter and the material impossibility to provide the unequivocal evidence of a breach. That's a heck of a few words I managed to get through without stumbling. <laughs> but nonetheless, so therefore, yeah. thank you very much Need. We don't quite get... We won't get to the bottom of this, and it's not really worth it, so on we go. And of course, as we know, Claire, seven teams. Seven teams in Formula are now protesting, and they're very upset. So...
0: Yeah, i I think it's I think it's incredible, isn't it? Firstly, well done on that statement because that's got a lot of words that I would have messed up. I mean, I think the question we're all asking is, uh, do teams cheat?
2: Teams innovate, um, and, <laughs> and and well, so
0: you're I'm, also a press and, officer. And
2: actually, and actually, uh, yes, I was a very long time ago. <laughs> the um, so look, look, when you've been press officer for Eddie Jordan, you can dress up anything. <laughs> I mean, for goodness' sake. So when I was at Cosworth, we had the engine freeze. Okay, so there was no engine development permitted for those years. We had the V8 engines. So as a result, we did engine development. You were allowed to modify the engine if there was a reliability problem. The engines were going to break down. Obviously, in Cosworth's case, we were supplying three or four teams. So if if we had a problem, it could potentially mean three or four teams not finishing uh, a race. So what you would do is you would go to Charlie Whiting at the FIA and you say, oh, look, Charlie, this piston has broken or these valves don't last the distance. And actually, uh, we need to make a new one, uh, which will be much more reliable. Now, the fact is it might also produce more horsepower, but of course, you don't admit that. So what you do is, uh, I mean, in, in simple terms, a Ferrari or a Renault or a Mercedes or a Cosworth would go into the dyno, decide what bit they wanted to fail they would fail that component, take a photograph of it send it to the FIA saying, oh dear, look, those pistons are failing but we've got a perfect replacement, it's much more reliable don't mention the fact it gives you an extra 12 horsepower and then that information gets shared with your competitors so the competitors get told, well, well, Cosworth want to do this or Ferrari want to do that And generally, they don't complain about it because they think, oh, yeah, we can see what they're doing. But actually, if we say no, then they'll say no to our next little upgrade. So actually, nobody really ever kind of went to town on it. This is why, during the engine freeze in Formula One, engine development continued. Now, let's talk about the Ferrari thing. Ferrari have done something that's given them a lot more horsepower last year. It has to do with allegedly circumventing the fuel flow meter. Uh, Very simple. It's a meter in, in the fuel line which uh, basically you can determine how much fuel is going into the engine at any point in time. Here's the thing. The FIA have not been able to prove it. They've not been able to prove it for lots of reasons, including the fact that the system is just too complex. Ferrari are insisting it's legal, FIA can't prove it's illegal, so they've come to this settlement. And of course that's really upset the competition. The competition is saying, why can't we have transparency, why can't you show us the details? Well of course, why should the FIA show them the details of Ferrari's engine, particularly if it is an innovation that is so smart they don't want the competition to think, oh wow, we saw what they do, well we could do that as well, or we could do a version of it. So the FIA are being pretty robust about their position and I'm afraid it's like any sporting event you know the referee has made a decision everyone else gets upset about it tough that's what the regulator is there to do it doesn't mean that Ferrari have been cheating it just means that the FIA have decided this is my water under the bridge on we go forward
1: understand that and they come out saying we are the regulators of this sport and we will continue to police it with the utmost Strictness and will continue to monitor uh, all the sport and all the teams uh, as, as much as possible. Does that call into question their authority though? Are they clever enough, as you might say? Because that's one of the areas where Formula One specializes in people who are so bright and are able to produce these double diffusers or the, the, uh, the double this, axis steering but, and
2: so on. But this is the thing, and I mean, Claire, you know, you're working in a Formula One paddock, it's packed full of engineers, the likes of Adrian Newey and all the people who work for them. And when they look at the regulations, they read the regulations for two things. They read the regulations for what they do say, and then they read the regulations for what they don't say. Because what they don't cover gives you your opportunity to innovate. Now, everyone can bitch and complain about it, but at the end of the day, Adrian Newey, when you read his book, he has spent his whole career exploiting what is possible within those rules and actually the FIA have made a rod for their own bark by coming up with this quite convoluted statement about we've reached an agreement and a settlement and all the rest of it and then everyone just smells a rat bringing it back from talk about the rules and we can wrangle away and discuss for as long as we like bring it back to the purity of racing and I'm going to take you back now to 1950 So, as you know, I spend part of my winter each year in Australia, uh, in the Barossa Valley, and I didn't know that just down the road from where I have my house there, the Australian Grand Prix was held in 1950. So I set about tracking down someone who'd been to the Australian Grand Prix in 1950, and I came across the very person. Viv Fieberger, lovely guy, 82 years of age, and he
5: spent a bit of time chatting to me about the event. I would have been 11... uh, 10 going on 11. No, no, 11 going on 12, probably, if I really think about it. So these... The
2: drivers in the Australian Grand Prix in 1950, I mean, you as a, a young lad, people like Doug Whitford and Lex Davidson and Tony Gaze and Stan Jones is the father of Alan Jones. I mean, these drivers and their machines must have been pretty special to witness.
5: Ah, oh, yes, we were in awe of them. We thought they were very, very brave. We thought that we this the most dangerous thing we'd ever seen. But looking back... They only had a crash helmet on and a pair of gloves and seemed to be sitting in a pair of overalls. There's no fireproof anything. I don't even know they had a fire extinguisher. Not like we're all geared up for today. But, no, that was uh, that was exciting, and, um, yeah, yeah we, all, we all loved that.
2: And talking about safety, I mean, I've been looking at photographs of the race. Uh, there isn't much safety protection for anybody, including spectators, but I understand uh, Bill Seppelt a rather famous name in the wine industry, had a unique way of testing the
5: safety features around the circuit. I find it fascinating. Mr Colin Gramp was telling me about... he was The Gramp organisation were in charge of putting up the safety barriers. The safety barriers, of course, were hay bales, uh, just the ordinary square bale. And so on uh, the very first day that they were put up, Mr. Colin Graham said to Mr. Seppel, "And do you think these are safe?" And, and Mr. Seppel said, "Well, I'll test them." Hopped in his Buick straight eight, put them into, put the vehicle into reverse, slammed into the into the bales, didn't move them too much, and said, "Yep, that's a safe barrier." I
2: love it. I love it. That's that's crash testing 1950s style.
5: In those days, it was recognised, accepted. Nobody questions it. You. you have to laugh at it today. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So admission was adults four shillings, children. One shilling. Of course, you and I were discussing before that at this time Australia was still using the pound sterling as currency. Yes. So four shillings and a shilling was that a lot of money, or was that... uh,
5: Four shillings would have taken some finding uh, because uh, we're just getting out of the, from the war when we were on restricted everything. We had ration tickets for food. We had ration tickets for fuel and everything else. Uh, and. Um, Things were just starting, financially, starting to come good. But four shillings would have been a a fair effort back in those days.
2: Now, the interview that uh, I've done before speaking to you about the Australian Grand Prix in 1950 is with a Scottish Formula One driver called David Coulthard. And it's a namesake of his, William Coulthard, who's remembered in Uriutpa. He laid out the town...
5: He did indeed. He In the laid 1850s. out, the, And he was a very generous benefactor too. And he, he uh, gave the, um, the, the grounds for the New Yorker High School with. He donated that to the cause. And also some other uh, prominent areas around the Rosser Valley. Very generous benefactor.
2: And so this racetrack that we have just been talking about, it went past his original home. Yes, indeed. Called Coulthard House. Coulthard House. And then still today you have the Coulthard Reserve which is along uh, Penrice Road.
5: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's highly recognised and, and remembered. He was a, a wonderful, wonderful man.
2: Looking back all these years later, it's 70 years ago, uh, Viv, mm. um, and, I mean, I have to say your memories of it are fantastic. What does this bring back to you just spending today? Oh,
5: about? wonderful memories. Uh, I'm I delighted that you should have approached me, and... Uh, it, it did bring a lot of and gets It gets the grey matter thinking pretty very quickly. And there's a lot of uh, wonderful memories. I have to relate this one to you. We'd go down and, uh, at six o'clock in the morning to see that, you know. Beautiful memories, you know, uh, because you're never normally out of bed at six, as I remember it. But we'd go down a carload of us and um, enjoy every minute of it, every minute.
1: What a lovely ending. What a lovely man, too,
2: is it what's it like then? Give us give us an idea of what that track looks like now. It's essentially a square, and all of those roads are still in place. And pretty well, no one knows that the Australian Grand Prix was there in 1950. Why? I, th- I think it's just uh, it's disappeared behind the mists of time, and. The more I talked to people about it, the more they were amazed to hear the story. So the thing about this Grand Prix in 1950 in Australia is it was not a round of the Formula One World Championship. That was going to kick off at Silverstone in May of that year. So this race took place on January the 2nd. Um, It was run to Formula Libra rules which meant you could pretty well turn up with anything and compete in the Grand Prix. But the entry list was very, very interesting. There was a guy called Doug Whiteford, quite a, a famous Australian racing driver. He turned up in a home built car, a Ford V8 Special. He had built that out of a former Forestry Commission pickup truck in his garage. You know where his garage was? Albert Park in Melbourne. <laughs> so he'd built his Grand Prix car in Albert Park in Melbourne, self-built, special, went off and won the Australian Grand Prix in 1950. The one that I absolutely loved as well, was there was a guy called Charlie Dean. He turned up in a Maybach. Now, this was a car that he had built himself. He'd salvaged the engine from a World War II German half-track, built this car in his garage, Turned up at the Grand Prix. Uh, the the bodywork was from a World War II fighter plane. I mean, it was the meanest looking and sounding device you've you've ever uh, imagined. You got a real flavour of the fact there were a lot of home built specials in this austerity ridden Australia post war Australia. Couple of final mentions. Two competitors who turned up. Tony Gaze. Now Tony Gaze was a decorated Spitfire pilot Second World War. He was based at RAF West Hampton down near the south coast. And his mate was the Duke of Richmond and Gordon. And it was Tony Gaze who said to the Duke of Richmond, why don't you turn the RAF base into a racetrack? And it became Goodwood Circuit. So Tony Gaze is pretty famous for that. And also he became the very first Australian Formula One World Championship driver. And the other person who raced in the race that I think is quite interesting, Stan Jones. So Stan Jones was a mate of Tony Gaze's. Tony Gaze had actually sold him his car. It was an HRG. And Stan Jones turned up at that race and... uh, He is, of course, the father of Alan, who won the world championship for Williams in 1980. So the more you dig into that 1950 race, even though it wasn't around the Formula One world championship, even though there were people turning up in home built specials and all the rest of it. There was actually quite a lot of heritage and motorsport happening at that event and uh, plenty of good stories to come from it.
1: We better stop talking now, because this has been a long listen, I'm sure, for a lot of people going, what? This is more than an hour. Claire, to just give a hint of what's coming up in the next edition next month.
0: Yeah, next month we're going to be talking to trans racing driver Charlie Martin, who's racing in GT5s, and she's done a lot with Racing Pride and things like that. She talks a lot about her past and her transition to who she is now, and it is a fascinating listen. She was so open and so engaging.
1: We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and also all podcast
2: platforms, Mark. So on Twitter, we are at controls, and on Instagram, it's the at the controls podcast. Thank you very much indeed. And questions, suggestions,
1: recommendations, whatever you like, we we'll look forward to hearing from you. Hashtag be kind. And we'll see you next month.